Well, good morning, Hume Lake. How are you today? Nice to see you. My name is Darren. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Daniel chapter 1. And uh, hopefully you grabbed one of those last night. Mikey, I'll repeat what Mikey said, which is we've got Bibles for you. We'd love for you to have one of those. I'm going to share a lot of stuff this week. And, uh, and the, the most important stuff you're going to hear from me are not my stupid stories or my opinions or whatever. The most important thing you're going to hear all week is the stuff we look at together in God's Word. That's the stuff that matters. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one, and uh, we want you to have it as we kind of walk our way through. Now, as you're looking for Daniel, by the way, that's in the Old Testament, so if you're looking for it, uh, you're looking in the first half of the Bible. And uh, as you're looking, let me tell you just a little bit about myself and about how the week's going to go. My name is Darren. I might have said that already. I'm a pastor in Fullerton, California, which is like North Orange County. I've been down there for six years or so. Before that, I lived in Long Beach. Before that, I actually lived and worked here at Hume Lake, so I was on staff at Hume for almost 10 years, and then... uh, And then before that, I grew up in Arizona. So I've been in a couple different places. I've been married for 27 years. I got four kiddos. Um, Let me think. My oldest is 23. He lives in Montana. And then I got my youngest is 16. He'll be a junior next year at Fullerton High School. So I'm kind of in that range stage of life. I like indie music and video games. I'm a I'm a, I'm a multi-platform video game guy, so if you like video games, if you like rock music, if you like um, the Dodgers, which I know we got some San Diego people here, so I'm, I want to be careful, but I'm, uh, those, are, those are my things. So here's the thing to know. We're going to be studying the narrative portions of the book of Daniel during our sessions together all week, but then I'm going to be out and around all week too, so you'll see me uh, sitting out by the volleyball court or over at Human Beings or whatever, and most of the time, if I'm sitting by myself, uh, you'll see me and I'll have my... I'll my book. I brought a couple books to read. I got my computer. I might be prepping for a sermon for next week or whatever. But here's what I want you to know before we even kick off our week. It's this. There is nothing I brought that's in my backpack that's more important to me than getting to know you and getting to talk with you. And so if you see me and I'm reading and you think like, I don't want to bug that dude because he's reading his book. No, no, no. I want to be bugged. In fact, if camp goes the way I hope it will go this week, I hope I don't finish my book. Does that make sense? I would rather talk with you and maybe you have questions about the stuff we're going to be studying in our chapel sessions. I'm happy to talk with you about that. Maybe you got questions about life. Maybe you got questions about Jesus. Maybe you got questions about the church or Christianity. Maybe you just got questions about what it means to be a human living where we live in these days. I don't care. We can talk about music. We can talk about video games. We can talk about baseball. I just would love to get to know you, and I want to be available to you. So that's what I'm hoping you hear me say, is that if, if in the course of these sessions you think, I think I'd like to ask him a question, or I think I want to pick his brain about something else, we can talk about whatever, and I want you to come and talk to me. So if I'm hanging out, I'm not going to like I'm not going to jam myself into your conversation. So, for instance, if you're sitting at a table with your friends, I'm not going to be like, hey, dudes, can I sit down here? And, you know, because that's a little creepy because I'm, you know, this guy. So you don't want that, right? But I'll be chilling, and if you want to come and talk to me, I'll be available, and we can, uh, we can push around anything you want to push around. So with that said, let's look at Daniel chapter 1. You've kind of heard this setup last night with Mikey. He did a great job of kind of setting the stage for what we're looking at this week. You've seen the videos. You're probably incredibly confused by the rabid puppet pit, as am I. We'll have to, you know, you'll see. That'll, I, that'll make sense as the week goes on. Trust me, that's going to come back around. The tire pit, the rabid puppet pit, those things, just there's a little foreshadowing there. Just watch. It's going to circle back. But our point in studying the book of Daniel is to understand the places where we have things in common with Daniel and his friends and the places where things are a little different for us and yet we can learn from the way they live, right? So read with me, if you will, in Daniel chapter 1. This morning, all I want to do is just look at the first six verses, which kind of set the stage for us. So here's what it says. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. By the way, Judah and Babylon are enemies, right? Judah and Babylon are enemies. So there's a little bit of the setting, right? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, uh, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so here's the setting. These four guys and others, but these four specifically in this particular section, have been taken forcibly from their home. The king of Babylon, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, has come to Judah and he's besieged it, which means he sacked the town, right? There's some kind of a battle that takes place. We don't know what got burned down. We don't know how many people got killed. We don't know what the war was like. We don't know if it was like a close battle or if it was like a dominating battle. We have no, they don't give us any of those details. What we know is that an enemy king came into the people of Judah's home territory and he sacked their city and he dragged these young men off as hostages. They are now essentially property, the property of the Babylonian king. So he takes these young men because they show promise, because they're educated, because they're good looking in some ways, because they are the kind of people that Babylon will shape into future Babylonian leaders, right? What Babylon does is it assimilates the people that it conquers, and it just sort of grows its kingdom through assimilation, right? So Babylon comes in, it sacks the city. We don't know whether Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whether their families were killed, whether their friends were killed. We don't know what all they lost, but we know that they've been taken by force from everything they know. As young men, we know they've been ripped from their homes, they've been dragged across the world to a foreign country, to a foreign place, into a place where they are essentially slaves and hostages and they are trapped, right? A place that does not recognize their God, that doesn't recognize their culture, doesn't recognize their way of life. They are in a brand new setting. Now look, in our lives, we're not always gonna get to choose the situations we're in. Some of you didn't choose the home things that are happening in your house. Some of you didn't choose the school you go to. Some of you didn't choose the city you're living in right now. You didn't choose. There's all kinds of stuff that happens in our lives. And we don't necessarily always get to choose the situation we're in. You guys know that by now. You know some of you are in situations right now. You left a situation yesterday that's difficult and you didn't choose it, right? We don't always get to choose our situation, but we are the ones who always get to choose how we respond to our situation. Does that make sense? And what we're going to see with Daniel is that put into a really difficult spot, they respond really well. Now, I'll be honest, I haven't always responded really well to difficult situations. I, uh, I remember a time... I was flying from L.A. to Spokane, Washington, and I, uh, I flew to Seattle. I had a little bit of a layover. It was only supposed to be like 30 minutes, and then I was going to get on this little kind of commuter plane, two-engine prop plane, and fly to Spokane from Seattle. But when I get to Seattle, they come over to the speakers, and they say, hey, you know, uh, we've got a little bit of a delay. We've got a problem with our plane, so it's just going to be like an extra hour. You're going to be in the airport for like two hours. Get yourself some food, and then our flight will resume in, a, in about an hour and a half. And so I got a sandwich. I go and I sit by the glass windows, and I'm watching uh, my plane, and it's sitting on the tarmac there, and there's like a mechanic, and he sort of opens up. It's not like he's just working on a little thing. He opens up the engine compartment, 
And he starts to like pull cables out. He's like doing things with wrenches. I'm sitting there watching this, and the longer I watch him, kind of the more stressed out I'm getting about the condition of the plane I'm supposed to fly on, you know what I'm saying? And uh, all of a sudden, he calls on his radio. He gets a few more mechanics. They come out. Now there's like three or four guys, right? And they're looking at manuals, and they're looking in the engine compartment. They actually go over to the other engine compartment. There's only two engines on this plane. They pull the other engine compartment off. They start to pull things out of there. Now, at this point, I'm starting to sweat, right? I'm starting to get really nervous about what's going on with my plane. And uh, they come over the speakers and they say, ladies and gentlemen, we're sorry, the, the significance of the problem with our flight to Spokane is a little uh, greater than we thought, so it's actually going to be a three-hour delay now from this point uh, before your flight resumes. So I go, I get another sandwich, I'm sitting in the Seattle airport, I'm looking out of this thing, and I'm just getting more and more stressed out, right? I can feel my heart beating fast, and I'm just thinking, like, I'm watching them work on this plane, and it just doesn't seem like they're fixing whatever's wrong with it, right? It seems like the mechanics are confused, feels like nobody knows what's going on. Finally, after I've been in the Seattle airport for five hours, you guys, they close up the engine compartments, but it never feels like they're high-fiving, like, yeah, we solved it or whatever. They're just kind of like, eh. They close the engine compartments. They come over the speaker. They're like, ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to board your flight. And I'm like, I'm going to die on this flight, you know? I've heard stories about people who had like a premonition or they had like a feeling that things were going to go wrong and then the plane went down. So I'm stressed out, right? And I get on the plane and I'm sweating and my, my knees are shaking and my hands are like kind of gripping the armrest and I'm just thinking like, this plane is not going to make it to Spokane. I'm thinking like, I don't want to be on this plane. I don't even care that much about Spokane. Like, I don't want to miss seeing my family again. Like, I don't want my life to be over. I can't believe this is happening to me. Like, what's going to happen? And then you guys, the craziest thing happened. Um, the stewardess gets up in the front, and she goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a, a little bit of an issue. She goes, as you may know, because of the five-hour delay, we had to combine two commuter flights, and so we don't have enough seats on this flight for everyone who was planning to go to Spokane today. She's like, I'd like to introduce to you Mrs. Jenkins, and I kid you not, there's this, she's got to be like 90 years old, this little old lady who steps up to the front, and she goes, Mrs. Jenkins was supposed to be flying to Spokane this afternoon uh, with her family. They're right here in the first two rows. And like her family like turns around and kind of waves. And she goes, but unfortunately, because we combine these flights, we don't have enough room on this flight for Mrs. Jenkins. And so we're looking for someone who would be so generous and noble and kind. We're looking for someone who would be so gracious that they would be willing to give up their seat to Mrs. Jenkins. And I was like, yep, that's me. I'll do it. I'll do it. I grab my backpack. Dude, when I stand up, the people on the plane start to clap for me, right? They're like applauding me. The lady's like, we're going to give you a $500 flight voucher. And people are cheering. They think I'm being brave, right? But in my heart, I'm thinking, Mrs. Jenkins is going to die, right? <laughs> like, this is it for Mrs. Jenkins. And you know what? That's not too bad. She's like 90. Uh, you know, at least... At least she's going to die with her family. They're right here in the first two rows, so that's not too bad. But I got to get out of here, you know? And I got off the plane. They gave me money. The people all thought I was like this noble, heroic man, when in actuality, I was just like a dirty coward, right? You see what I'm talking about? And I can tell you that story, and we can sort of laugh about it, but just think about this. Like, I'm the pastor of a church, and I decided to kill an old woman on a flight to Spokane, right? <laughs> It's not, really, it's not really that funny. We don't get to choose our situations, but we choose how we respond to them, and I responded with cowardice. I responded with fear. I responded with self-preservation. I responded with the desire to put me and what I want and what I think I deserve above the needs of an old woman, right? And that's not great. 
Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all of a sudden in a situation that is very difficult. They've been forcibly removed. And it seems to them, I would guess initially, or maybe to you, like evil has won the day. You know what I'm saying? It feels like, oh, this is a, this is a terrible thing that's happened. The people of God have been overthrown by the Babylonians. But I want to point you to verse 2 because there's an interesting sort of kink in the mix here. If your inclination is to think, oh, something really terrible is happening to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, evil is winning, I want you to look with me again at verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1 because it says this, the Lord, that's Yahweh, capital L, right? The Lord, the God of Judah, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord, verse 2, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar with some of the vessels of the house of God. It tells us in this story that Nebuchadnezzar took their sacred holy items from their temple and he took them to his pagan temple and he placed them in there. And you could look at that and go, why are the villains winning? But Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that the villains in this story are actually being used by God. The Babylonians are actually God's servants. And what's happening in the story is not that evil has overtaken Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's life. What's happening is that the sovereign God of the universe is punishing the people of Judah because of their unfaithfulness. Keep your finger in Daniel chapter 1, or you can just listen to this if you want. But if we turn to Jeremiah, if we turn to Jeremiah 25, what we find in Jeremiah 25 is that the prophet Jeremiah came to the people of Judah and said, because God has spoken to you and you haven't listened, because God has tried to lead you as your king and as your master and you've rejected him, God is going to give you over to your enemies. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 25, 4. It says, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing and everlasting desolation, right? So I want you to have the paradigm shift in your head because you might be reading the story of Daniel and thinking, oh, poor Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, like they're in this terrible situation and the, all these bad things are happening to them. But what I want you to understand is that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah would have understood that even though things were terrible, they were in the situation they were in because their people had disobeyed God. It might seem to you like God was not in control when the Babylonians came in and conquered Judah, but it didn't seem that way to the people of Judah because God had said, all you have to do is follow me and listen to me, and I'll take care of you, but if you reject me, then I'm going to hand you over to your enemies, and that's exactly what happens in Daniel chapter 1. Now, this creates a little bit of a theological question for you, and I don't want you to miss it. But sometimes in our lives, we, th we feel like when things are going good, that that means God is working, right? When we're getting into the programs we want to get into, we make it onto the team we want to make it onto, we, get, you know, we audition for a play and we get through, or what, maybe you're making good money at your job or whatever, and you think like, oh, God is moving because things are happy and things are joyful. 
But when things are hard, when things are hard at home or things are hard at school or things are complicated in the world, we think, where is God? One of the things I want you to see that we learn in Daniel chapter 1, just in the first six verses, is that God is at work both in the good times and the bad times. And we just have to have eyes to see it. We have to have eyes to recognize. There are times in our lives, and we've talked about this already. Mikey talked about it last night. There are times in this life where the world will be hostile towards our Christian faith. And sometimes that's because they hate our Christian faith, but sometimes it's because we've done wrong. Sometimes when the world is hostile, it's because we have not been representing the heart of Jesus very well. There is hostility in the world toward Christianity, but sometimes it's not toward the heart and the teaching and the character of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes it's against the ways in which people in Jesus' name have manifested judgmentalism and hatred and bigotry and patriarchy and all kinds of other things, right? Not every kind of oppression comes because God has disconnected himself. God is present in the good and the bad. And sometimes the lesson that needs to be learned is not for the foreigner, but for the, for the person from Judah, right? It's for God's person. Sometimes it's me that needs to learn the lesson, not somebody else. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are in the situation they're in because God is in control. It might feel to them or to you in looking at the story from the outside like God is not nowhere to be found. But God is in control of this situation and he's shaping events to transform Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and to transform the, the pagan culture at the same time. That's the way God still works in our day and age today. You might be going through the best season of your life or you might be going through the hardest season of your life. What I want you to hear as we begin our week together is that God is with you in them both. That God has things for you to learn in both of those situations, in all of those settings. The power of God is on display, right? God is in control. Psalms chapter 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all, right? God's kingdom rules over all. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, By him, and that's Jesus, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So even in the moments in your life that feel the darkest, and even in the situations in your life that feel the hardest, one of the things I want you to hold on to is that God is there, that he sees you, and he's with you, that he's present, that he has things both to teach you and the people that are around you, that he's constantly working to glorify himself, to draw people to himself and to glorify himself. God is never absent from a circumstance, even a difficult circumstance, right? God is present in this story of Daniel, even though it's hard for Daniel. So Daniel and his friends have an interesting question, or they have an interesting dilemma, and we have the same dilemma. Let me put it out for you. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or in our show, you're seeing um, Sherman and, uh, I'm going to mess up their names, right? Judith and, what's the Daniel character's name? Her name's, help me. Darlene. Darlene, thank you. We're seeing them sort of wrestle with what to do, right? In the, in the video we watched a second ago, when they're standing by the fire pit, Judith picks up the tires and starts to throw them on the fire. And she's like, oh, this smells like apple pie, right? Except with burning tires in the background or whatever. What's happening there? Well, there's a dilemma that people face, right? When you're in a foreign place, when you're in a place that doesn't understand you and doesn't necessarily hold the same beliefs you have, you have a question you have to ask yourself. And it's true for them and it's true for us. The question is, are you gonna just blend in and fit into the new culture, right? So in essence, for Daniel, is he just gonna become a Babylonian? 
Is he going to reject everything he's learned as a child? Is he going to reject his parents' culture? Is he going to reject the people of God? And is he just going to start to live like a Babylonian? That idea of like, when in Rome, act like the Romans, right? Daniel and his friends have to ask themselves, do we just do whatever we have to do to fit in here, to just blend in? Or on the other hand, they have the option if they want to, they can stand up and fight, right? They could stand up and say, hey, you know what? We don't believe in your false gods. We don't believe in Babylon. We don't believe there's any King Nebuchadnezzar. We believe there's only one king, and it's our God. And you know what? You could kill us. We don't care. We're going to fight you. And you know what? They probably would have gotten killed pretty early on in this process, right? They would have lost their opportunity to have any influence. But they have the option. The option exists for them and for us. Do you want to blend into the culture that's different than you? Or do you want to fight the culture that's different than you, right? And to be honest with you, the church, the Christian church, historically, throughout the ages, has kind of swung on a pendulum between these two. We can see eras of time where the church just basically like tries to fade into the culture, right? Don't ruffle any feathers. Don't bother anybody. Don't get in anybody's face. Just sort of move along and try, and try to just sort of look like everybody else. And then we see times in the culture where the church has made the decision that they're going to basically make an enemy of everybody else, that they're going to stand up and fight and shout in people's faces and get their bullhorns out and start to curse at people who don't follow God. What I'd like to suggest to you and what the text in Daniel suggests, though, is that there is maybe a middle way. For sure, there is a middle way. That maybe the only two options aren't for you to blend in or for you to fight the culture. Now, here's what's interesting about this. I would guess, and I don't know you yet, I'm hoping to get to know some of you this week, I would guess there's some of you in the room right now who are followers of Jesus, but none of your friends know that, right? None of your friends know that, why? Because you made a choice to blend in. Because somewhere along the way you thought, I don't want my friends to know I'm a Christian, I don't want them to know what I think about sexual immorality, I don't want them to know what I think about, you know, love and grace and sin and whatever. I don't want them to know that I'm a church person, so I'm just gonna blend in. And I bet if I were to follow you around at school and be like, hey, tell me about your friend, they'd be like, she's awesome, she's really nice, he's really cool, great at baseball, great at wrestling, whatever. But if I said, Do, are, are they a person of faith? They'd be like, well, I don't know, I, I've never seen that. Well, that's because at some point you made the choice to be a blender, right? To just, just fit in, do what you have to do to fit in. And you have faith, but nobody knows it. There are probably others of you sitting in this room, just based on the size of the room, who've made the choice to be a fighter, you know what I mean? And if I were to follow you around at school, I'd find that you probably don't have very many friends, and some of the people that know you think that you're a religious zealot or a weird heretic or that you hate everybody, right? And you made a choice at one point to go, you know what, I believe in Jesus, and I think everybody else is going to hell, and I think everybody else is busted, and I think everybody else is bad, and I'm going to tell them I think so, right? Well, you made a choice to fight the culture, and as a result, you're, you're dealing with the consequences of that. What I want to tell you, and what I think the book of Daniel tells us really clearly, and we're going to be talking about it all week, is that there's a middle way, you guys. There's a way that neither chooses to blend into the culture nor fight the culture, but a middle way that chooses to influence the culture. To influence the culture. And the way that happens is not by fighting it or disappearing into it, the way Daniel and his friends will influence the culture is by endearing themselves to the culture. Does that make sense? By living a life that endears itself to the culture. We'll see that develop as the week goes on. What Daniel and his friends make a decision to do is, number one, not to be conformed by Babylon. Not to let Babylon turn them into Babylonians. They don't want to be conformed by outside pressure. That's what conforming is. Outside pressure, like a Play-Doh mold, right? 
We don't want to be Play-Doh in the world's Play-Doh mold. The world just presses us in and turns us into its shape. We don't want to be conformed by the outside world. What we want to be, and Romans makes this really clear, is we want to be transformed, transformed from the inside out. Listen to this in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and that could be brothers or sisters, by the way, so that's all of us. I appeal to you, humans, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So look, you don't have to be conformed. That's outside pressure in. You don't have to be conformed by the world. You can be transformed by the power of God in your inner being, and then look at what happens. When you're transformed by the power of God in your inner being, not only are you shaped, but you have the opportunity to reshape your school and to reshape your volleyball team and to reshape your workplace at McDonald's or whatever. You have the ability to reshape your culture, whatever that circle looks like, from the inside out by being a person that the world loves and that they respect, that they want to listen to, a, a world that that looks at you and says, you know, there's something different about her. There's something different about him, and I want it, right? Rather than fighting the culture or, or blending into the culture, we find a middle ground, which is to influence the culture through internal transformation rather than external, like, conformation, right? Does that make sense? Now, it's interesting for us. Daniel and his friends... We're exiles, and you'll hear the word exile a lot this week. Daniel and his friends were exiles. An exile, for what it's worth, is someone who is forcibly removed from their homeland or someone who has left their homeland and has been told they are unwelcome to return, right? Daniel and his friends are exiles by the hand of God. God has exiled them. He pulled them out of their homeland, right? What I want you to see as we sort of lean into this week is that technically you and I are not exiles. We haven't been removed forcibly from our homelands, for most of us. There may be some of you in the room who are refugees or your families are refugees or whatever, but when it comes to a spiritual sense, we aren't exiles. We haven't been forcibly removed from anywhere. We're something different. You know, the message of Jesus, and a lot of people don't think about this, but the message of Jesus is not just about going to heaven when you die, right? In fact, the message of Jesus, as summarized by all of the gospel writers in one way or another, is actually a message of immigration. I don't know if you know that. Matthew 4, 17 summarizes the, the message, the preaching of Jesus in this way. This is what it says in Matthew 4, 17. It says, after that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is available. The message of Jesus, as summarized by the gospel writers, is a message of immigration. What Jesus is saying is, hey, world, men and women, People in America, 2023, and also people in ancient Israel, you've been living in your own kingdom. You've been living in the kingdom of Darren, or you've been living in the kingdom of America, or you've been living in the kingdom of whatever, right? But there's a better place to live. That's the message of Jesus. You've been living in your world where you're the king, and you know how well that goes. When you're in charge, how does that work out, right? Not great, because... I'll tell you, I have limited power and I have limited knowledge. So when I'm in charge, there's a lot I don't know and there's a lot I can't control. The message of Jesus is you've been living in your own kingdom where you're the boss and that's not working out for you. In fact, you're broken and busted and your relationship with God is ruined. So what Jesus says is why don't you walk away from your kingdom? That's what the word repent means, by the way. It means to turn. He says, why don't you walk away from your kingdom, Darren? 
why don't you walk away from your kingdom and come and live in my kingdom? That's the message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is available. And he's not just talking about when you die, when your heart quits beating. Jesus is saying, you could live in the kingdom of God right now. You could live in the kingdom of God today. What does that mean? Well, can you not live in California anymore? No, you still live in California. Can you not live in San Diego anymore? No, you still live in San Diego. You not live in America? No, no, no. We, we live in all those places. We, we have dual citizenship. I live in Fullerton, California, but I am a citizen of the kingdom of God because I heard the message of Jesus who said, stop living in your kingdom and come to mine. And I repented. I turned away from myself and I turned to Jesus. And so I have dual citizenship. But, but it's tricky for us to understand with the Daniel thing because they were pulled out of Judah and they were moved to a foreign land. For us, Jesus says we can live in the kingdom of God right now where, where his will is the thing that drives us, but I'm still in California or I'm still in Arizona or I'm still living in Fullerton or Orange County or whatever. How does this work? Well, the key for us is we're not exiles necessarily like Daniel and his friends. There's a different word for what we are. The word for what we are, people with dual citizenship who are representatives of King Jesus in all kinds of different places, that's called being an ambassador. Have you ever heard that word? An ambassador. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, Jesus has invited you to immigrate to his kingdom and then to be his ambassador, an emissary. Interestingly, about ambassadorship, an ambassador is not somebody that volunteers, right? I'm not, uh, at the end of my message today, I'm not going to be like, how many of you are followers of Jesus would like to be an ambassador? Raise your hand, because you don't volunteer for it, right? An ambassador is someone who's appointed by the king to carry the king's message to the king's intended recipients, right? Jesus chose me, and guess what? He didn't just choose me. It's not just because I'm a pastor at a church. He chose all of us who left our own kingdoms where everything was busted, and we immigrated to the kingdom of God through the power of Jesus, he appointed all of us to be his ambassadors. And an ambassador lives in a totally different way. An ambassador lives as someone who is both a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the world in which we're in. Because what? We're trying to help people understand what the kingdom of God can be like, the difference that Jesus can make. The end of the day, the Babylonians weren't necessarily hostile towards the people of Judah's faith because uh, the people of Judah were monotheistic. They had one God, but the, the people of Babylon were polytheistic. So what they wanted to do was just assimilate everything else. Like, okay, the Judah God, yeah, that God can just be one of our gods now. Come on, here we go, right? They weren't necessarily hostile towards the people of Judah's faith, but they were only interested in building their own kingdoms, Right? What Daniel and his friends realized is that they had the opportunity not to fight the Babylonian culture and not to conform to the Babylonian culture, but to transform it by being ambassadors of God, by being emissaries of the kingdom of God, a place in the middle that gives us the opportunity to reveal to people who don't know any better. The Babylonians didn't know. They didn't know the power of Daniel's God. Now, they would come to see it over time. But they, even still, they wouldn't see it pervasively, right? Daniel and his friends decided to be ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Here's the good news. It doesn't matter what school you go to or what city you live in. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter what your family looks like. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or what language you speak. None of those things prevent you from being an incredible ambassador for the kingdom of God. No matter who you are and no matter where you find yourself, no matter what circumstance, it could be gross or it could be awesome, there is an opportunity there to look at the people in your circle and say, there is a better place to live than the kingdom of me and the kingdom of you. We all could be living in the kingdom of God and this is what it looks like. The kingdom of God looks like this. I get, I get to be an ambassador in Fullerton. This week I get to be an ambassador at Hume Lake because there are some of you in this room who are living in the kingdom of self and it's all you've ever known and it's all you like, right? When I talk about Jesus, you're like, when can this thing be done so we can get on to the good stuff, right? I get it, I get it. I hope this week you'll listen to me talk about the kingdom of God and my prayer is that this week, those of you who aren't already followers of Jesus will immigrate before the week is over. Does that make sense? That by the power of the blood of Jesus, you will move from the kingdom of yourself, where you are dying, by the way, and you will come to the kingdom of Jesus where you can be healed and restored. Why do we live like this? Why, why would you live a life as an ambassador? I'll finish with one last story. I, um, I admit that it is hard to be an outsider. I admit that there are times where people look at me as a Christian or as a pastor and they judge me or they hate me, not necessarily even because of things I've done, but because of the things some other Christians have done in Jesus' name in ways that have nothing to do with Jesus, right? I admit that it's hard to be an ambassador. Why do I do it? Why should you do it? Here's where we'll finish. My, uh, my son, Hank, I said I have four kids. My middle son, is, his name is Hank. He's 21 now, but when he was potty training, like three years old, we were in the Fresno airport and Hank was in this spot where, like, uh, if he needed to go to the bathroom, he didn't mean, like, oh, in 20 minutes, it'd be great to find a restroom. Like, if Hank said, I need to go to the bathroom, it meant there was, like, time on the clock. You had to get him to the bathroom right away or there's going to be a problem, right? So we're in the Fresno airport. We're getting ready to fly to uh, visit family in Las Vegas. And my son, Hank, who's just a little guy, he goes, Dad, I need to go potty. And so I don't even remember what I was doing. I was probably, like, playing a video game or something, right? And I, I just, like, dropped whatever I was doing. I scoop up that kid and I'm like, now I'm like running through the Fresno airport trying to get to the men's restroom. And you know, like people are looking at me a little bit weird and like the security guard like unsnaps his gun because technically I've got a chemical weapon at that point. So I'm running through the airport and I get to the men's restroom, right? I'm holding my boy. I get to the men's restroom. I find the stalls. I sit down my kid. I, I pull down his pants and right at that moment, I don't want to be too graphic because I know we're just getting to know each other, but like he lets go, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> So there is a catastrophe. There's like a mess on Hank. There's a mess on his clothes, on the floor, on my shoes, the bottom of my pants. There's a mess, right? And you guys, there's a moment, I'm just being honest, there's a moment there where I thought to myself, I'm just going to put this kid in the dumpster, right? There was like one of those big, uh, one of those big trash cans, you know? And I thought, I'm young, you know, I can have more kids. And this kid will be like a fixer-upper kid for some other family who needs one. Like, they'll see him in the trash, and they'll be like, we'll take this kid and clean him up, but I don't, I don't think I have the bandwidth for this, you know? So I'm thinking, like, how do I get out of here? And all of a sudden, I look down at my little boy, and he looks up at me, and he's sobbing. He's crying, so embarrassed, you know? And so I start to clean him up. 
And the next memory I have is of me standing at the bank of sinks in the Fresno airport bathroom, cleaning poop out of these tiny underpants, right? And I remember seeing my reflection and thinking like, when did this become my life? You know, like when did I become the guy who does this disgusting job? I got him cleaned up, we made our flight. Now let me tell you, uh, there was never a point in that day where Hank thanked me, right? There isn't gonna be a day in the future where Hank's gonna call me up and be like, Dad, you remember that day in the Fresno airport? So inspirational, I've decided to become a missionary or whatever, like that's not coming back around. He doesn't even remember that, right? There were no other parents in the bathroom at the time going like, you sir are an excellent father, we're calling Oprah Winfrey or whatever, right? Like, I just did that gross job. Why'd I do it? There was nothing in it for me. There was no payoff. Being an ambassador of Jesus in this world, being an emissary of the kingdom of Jesus is a hard job. Why would you do it? Why would you do it? Well, you know why I did that thing for Hank, even though it was gross and even though it was hard and even though sometimes it, it you know, and like there were parts of it that were really disgusting. You know why I did that job? It wasn't for the payoff. Being paid or like getting some sort of reward for things is, is a good motivator, but sometimes in the kingdom of God, the payoff is for King Jesus, not for us. So why would we do it? Why would you be an ambassador? Why did Daniel and his friends do what they did? Well, why did I do that thing for Hank? It wasn't for the payoff. What was it? It was my love for that kid. My love for that kid provoked me to do that difficult job. My love for that kid provoked me to do it. Love is fuel. Love is a catalyst for being an ambassador, for doing difficult things. Why did Daniel and his friends do what they did the way they did? Why did they not fight the culture or blend into the culture? Because what we will see in the course of our study this week is that Daniel and his friends loved their captors. They loved Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it's hard to understand, but God did something unique in them where they cared about these people who were hurting them. Why will you, if you will, why will you be an ambassador as God has appointed you if you're a follower of Jesus? It won't be because there's some great benefit for you. The reason that you will live as an emissary of the kingdom of God in this world that will sometimes oppose you will be because you love your fellow man, because you look left and right at other human beings no matter where they come from, no matter what their skin color, no matter what their social situation, no matter who they are, and you recognize in them a solidarity that they were made in the image of God, that they are loved by God, that they have worth and value just as a created being, and that like you and me, they are broken. And you at some point were blessed because somebody told you who Jesus was and that you could come and live in the kingdom of God, and the most decent and loving and generous thing you can do is let other people know too that they don't have to live in the kingdom of themselves anymore, but that immigration to the kingdom of Jesus is possible. We do it because we love our fellow man, and because the love of God pours into us and out of us into the lives of other people. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you will take this, these first six verses, these young men who were put into a very difficult situation and yet make the choice to be influencers in that spot, to transform the culture rather than being conformed by it. I pray that you would take these first six verses and that you would inspire a group of people in this room who would say, that's who I want to be in my school. That's who I want to be in my city. That's who I want to be in this world. A representative of Jesus to people that don't know who he is. And for those in the room who've never put their faith in Christ, I pray, God, that they would feel a sense of your love, that they would feel a sense of your peace, that they would feel a sense of the fact that you know them and that you're with them, and that they would hear the voice of Jesus calling from 2,000 years ago, but still relevant today, that says, 
Why are you living in your kingdom? It sucks there. Come and live in mine. I pray that those in this room who don't know you would immigrate, that they would turn from their own life and turn to the life that can only be found in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.